Welcome to Course Stories, produced by the Instructional Design and New Media Team of EdPlus at Arizona State University. In this podcast, we tell an array of course design stories alongside other ASU Online designers and faculty. On today's course story... My aspiration is big. I hope this course is transformative of their lives. I hope they think about leadership in a different way. And that helps them no matter whether they immediately get a promotion and are in a different position because of their degree. My hope is that this particular course feels transformative and makes them think of their role in the organization, vision alignment, motivation, introspection in a deeper way. But it just makes them hopefully better workers for sure, but also hopefully touches their lives a little bit and maybe makes them different kinds of people. Hi. I'm Mary Loader, an instructional designer from ASU Online. I'm Ricardo Leone. I'm a media specialist at the same place. Yeah, we work together. Let's get on with the show. Okay. Hey, Mary. Hi, Ricardo. How's it going? Really well. How are you? Good. This is the first episode of season three. Yes. Happy New Year. Happy New Year. Happy spring. 2023. 2023. Third season. Third season. Can't believe it. Holy moly. They're still letting us do this. And what are they letting us do today, Mary? Well, today we're talking with Maggie Dempsey, who is one of the leaders of instructional design and new media. She works in a very unique program. And I'll let Maggie introduce herself and talk about Zaishen. Thank you guys. Happy to be here today to introduce this episode with our faculty. For a little context around ASU Zaishen and who I am and why Mary and Ricardo are talking to me in this moment, <laughs> <laughs> uh, maybe that would be important to begin with. I'm the Assistant Director of Instructional Design for ASU Zaishen. This is a unique program that launched in the fall of 2020 with more than a thousand students enrolled across four degree programs. It's unique in that it's the first full graduate level degree programs that are offered in a language other than English. Very cool. What language? Mandarin, Mary. That is awesome. I am excited to hear from your instructional designers on how they were able to maintain that experience. And I'm so interested to hear from our listeners on what they think about Doug, because he is a wonderful instructor with a wonderful perspective <laughs> on leadership and business. Can't wait. So Maggie, who are all our players going to be uh, today on the episode? Today's episode features our distinguished Thunderbird faculty, Professor Doug Guthrie. So he's the faculty that we worked on for TAM 542, the Mandarin version of global leadership and personal development. We have instructional designer Zachary Zydek. And then we also have translation curriculum coordinator, which is a very unique role to ASU, Kathy Cabizo. And Kathy does some amazing work in this. And I didn't really the kind of perspective you need to have when building international courses, mm-hmm. right? So we build courses all the time at ASU that are for international audiences that speak English, right? but we aren't necessarily like culturally sensitive mm-hmm. to the perspectives and connections that other cultures may Contexts. or may not have, right? The context. And they get into that today too, which is very interesting. Right. I'm really glad you brought that up, Mary, because sometimes one of the challenges that we deal with is that distinction between translation and localization and and what that means for culture and working with different student populations from different cultures, especially if you are delivering in a different language for that culture. When we refer to translation, that's actually the act of basically converting to another language. When we refer to localization, so you'll hear Professor Guthrie and you'll hear Kathy refer to some of these examples throughout the episode, uh, we're actually talking about the nuances of considerations for culture, the visual aspects of the course, and also technology aspects, and all of that 
plays into how you have to contextualize for that local culture. Totally. I can't wait for you guys to hear. Here it goes. Hi, my name is Zachary Zydek, and I'm an instructional designer at Ed Plus, working with the Zai Shen team. Kathy, would you like to introduce yourself? Sure. Hi, I'm Kathy Kabizo. I'll be in, uh, working with ASU Zaishan team for almost a year. I'm so grateful for the incredible opportunity today to talk to you about our courses. May I introduce our professor, Doug Guthrie? Thank you. It's wonderful to be here with you all. Doug Guthrie, I'm a professor of global leadership at the Thunderbird School of Global Management. I also am the executive director of our China teams there. With respect to what this course is about, I sort of have two areas of intersection. One is that I'm a longtime China scholar and have been living in and out of China since I was in my early 20s and I've done a lot of work there. Most recently, I was there working for this little company called Apple as the head of Apple University in China. The second area of intersection for me is that I was a dean of business school at the George Washington University School of Business, and this was back in 2010. So it was just when Coursera, edX, Udacity were exploding. So I've been working on and thinking about going deep in this kind of learning for a long time. Working with this team at Thunderbird and at Ed Plus has just been a gift because we're doing the product better than I've ever seen it done. And so thank you guys for having me and I'm looking forward to talking. Thanks, Doug, for sharing all your background there. And I just want to take a step back and looking at that intersection of a longtime China scholar and also being the dean of a prominent business school, what is it that got you initially excited about China, about going that direction in your 20s? Well, I became a China scholar by accident. I was a kid who was an undergrad at the University of Chicago and in the University of Chicago in the 80s, you study economics, right? It's the land of Milton Friedman. One little factoid that I've gotten comfortable sharing uh, later in my life is I'm dyslexic. So reading was tough for me when I was a kid. But when I was at Chicago, I decided I wanted to be more interesting than just an economics major. And so I studied Chinese. I happened to have a Taiwanese roommate and he said, Doug, China is your future. And so (laughs) I studied Chinese. And one of the magical things about China for a dyslexic person is it doesn't affect you the same way. And so, like, I didn't have a problem with reading the characters and I didn't have a problem with this audiographic language. So, I just fell in love. It was like the first time I was ever great at something. And so, then I left school and went to live in Taiwan and then came back and said, economics is not my future. Chinese is my future. China is my future. And so, after school, I went to get a PhD in economic sociology at the University of California, Berkeley. And... Um, Lived in China during that time when I was doing my doctoral dissertation research and been married to China ever since. Doug, that's a great snapshot of your life and of what led you to where you are now. Now I'm curious about how you took that experience. You've got the economics background, you've got the China background, and then how that goes into teaching. So what kind of made you go that direction? Yeah, it's a great question, Zach. And again, just to give you a little personal narrative. So when I graduated from my doctoral program, I just became a professor of Chinese sociology at NYU. And one of the things that I would do is teach these really large lecture courses that would draw everybody from across the campus. They would be lecture halls of like 400 people. But the kids that I enjoyed teaching the most were the business school students. And I couldn't figure out why, but it was just because they seemed so pragmatic. Like it wasn't this esoteric stuff about economic theory and economic development. It's just these kids who wanted to know, like, how do I do business in China? And I had, when I was doing my doctoral work, I had had a couple of consulting clients that were pretty big name 
clients. And so I knew something about it. And so I just felt us being drawn together. And so I was lucky because China was hot. And I started visiting a bunch of different business schools. And finally, I came back to NYU and became the director of executive education there with a heavy focus on China. If you're going to be in a business school, you can't just be a China professor. You have to be in a functional area and you have to teach in that area. And so it made the most sense for me to be in the management department because all of the advising that I'd done of companies in China was in the leadership space. And so I just ended up there and then the deanship came and then I left academia for a while and went to work for Apple and and because I wanted to be back in China. So with your experience, Doug, have you ever taught online courses in China previously or any teaching experience overseas? Yeah, a lot of teaching experience overseas in general in my job and over the course of the 25 years that I've been doing this kind of work. I've been a visiting faculty member at a number of different Chinese business schools, SIEBs, Fudan, Beijing University, Tsinghua University. And then, of course, as a dean, if you're a China guy, the focus in the job is to continue the China is the future thing. And so I spent a lot of time building partnerships with a number of different universities, different business schools in China. And then when I was working for Apple, it was a really unique experience because I was the head of Apple University in China. So I was teaching much more management types of people rather than business school people. But, you know, Apple's the single largest investor in China in the world. And it was the early days of Xi Jinping. And it just seemed like a fascinating time <laughs> to be on the front lines of that type of situation. And then eventually, after five years there, I needed to get my family back here. So we came back and then I was lucky to get a job at Thunderbird. Wow, that's incredible. So since you have so many teaching experience, have you had any online teaching experience? Yeah. Sorry, I forgot to answer that part of your question. <laughs> In the period when I was dean, which was 2010 to 2013, it was early days for online. And it was, you know, everybody was talking about Coursera, edX, Udacity. And when I've gone back and watched some of the talks that I gave about that, I think we were in the right place in terms of how we were thinking about it because our argument was, yeah, you can film a professor and broadcast it to 100,000 people, but we have that technology. It's called television. That's not teaching in my opinion. Like teaching has to be this richer interactive experience. And so what we were really doing in the GW days was trying to build a very interactive model of how to really engage online. We weren't into asynchronous teaching. So it was early days and it was before Zoom and before lots of things that have made it a lot easier to do interactive teaching, but maybe early days of Canvas and we would film and then we would put the films on there and then we'd have office hours virtually. So that was really our focus then. And I think we were right. It was just, we were so early days and I didn't have a team like you guys. And so, you know, then we did some of that stuff in my work with Apple um, and it was pretty good technical stuff, but it still was, you know, that wasn't our focus. We were more of a face-to-face -face operation within China. But then when I met you guys and sort of got the, the partnership up and running for how we're doing it at Thunderbird through your help, to me, I just, I think you guys are doing the best work out there. And so it's really exciting. This has been great to get all your background and the perspective on how you view teaching and where your life has led you up to this point. But focusing more in on this specific course that we're talking about today, TAM 542, Global Leadership and Personal Development, 
What do you hope students get out of this? What do you think is the main value of students taking this course? So it's a great question, Zach, and I'm going to break the answer down into three parts. So one is a lot of students want exposure to education outside of China, in particular to American business schools, and in particular to the ways in which you can really gain what is viewed as the cutting edge knowledge of business school leadership and development. A lot of students can't make that trip. Right? And especially during pandemic, it's been impossible. So the fact that we can reach them and create that opportunity for them without them moving at all is wonderful. Okay, So that's just sort of the obvious one, but especially that we did this during the pandemic, I think is special. The second piece, which is equally important to me, is the field of leadership development has been slow to develop in China. So if you think about the field of leadership development in the U.S., and, you know, I taught for a little while at Harvard Business School, and so I learned the way they teach leadership. But it's like this grandiose, charismatic leader, CEO, you're the top of the organization. And in China, people still sort of think about leadership that way, but they don't take it down to mid-level management. So a lot of these people who are in our courses are first time they're ever exposed to a leadership course. I don't love the Harvard Business School way of teaching this. And so in my own work, I've developed an approach to leadership called everyday leadership, which is we teach to not just mid-level management, but entry-level managers. And usually business leaders at places like Apple or other places will say, those people don't need leadership. We want them to focus on their functional area of expertise. And then my answer to them is always, yeah. And if they're good at that functional area of expertise, you're going to promote them and suddenly they're going to be leading people and they're not going to know what they're doing. And so I really like to take that approach and it plays into this idea in China that it's not just leadership is for the CEOs of the world. Leadership is for all of you. I've heard from students that they get excited by this because it's the first time they've ever been told, no, you're a leader. Leadership is not about position. It's about how you shape your environment, how you influence people and how you help your organization be better. The third thing that is really important to me, I think a lot of business schools just don't do a good job at being culturally sensitive, right? Now, Thunderbird is an exception. Thunderbird was built on this idea of really having deep cultural knowledge, but it's how I approach China. Like I just, every time I have a class full of managers, I'm like, we're going to talk about culture and we're going to talk about history and we're going to talk about context because it's really important. That always plays well on this side, but for the Chinese group, and you know this, Zach, because you've been sort of monitoring what we're doing, but the classes that have been the best are the ones when we don't just talk about leadership, but we also talk about politics and U.S.-China relations and what this means for everybody. And so it's sort of those three pieces that I'm really, really passionate about with this course. Doug, that's a great answer to exactly why this course exists and what value it has. And we want to touch on you know, all three of those points but before we do, I want to hand it over to Kathy because Kathy's been dealing with the translation of this course to a Mandarin First program. And it would be interesting to hear from her perspective, you know, a lot of those nuances in, in how language and how ideas are transferred from a U.S. audience to a, a China audience. Thank you, Zach. My role at uh, ASU is to work closely between the subject expert and the IDs and the approved translation vendors on the course design, redesign, and translation of the course content. Well, of course, translation is not as simple as just press a button on Google Translate and it will give you everything you need. The process is a little bit more complicated to that. So to be able to make sure the content are translated correctly and deliver those materials to students, 
So we actually, our team developed a process. So first of all, we need to contact each publisher for any translation permission of articles or case studies. And after some course materials are translated, another important part is transcription. So where we usually encounter a lot of difficulties right there because transcription is to transcribe the English into Chinese. And it's more complicated process than you would think. First, we need to create a glossary of terminologies that use in the class and make sure those aligned. In Doc's course, uh, some terms are, for example, alignment. That word itself can be translated into three different ways. It could be like align in Chinese and English words. That's alignment. Another way is to use as a noun. So you have a verb, a noun, and a specific term called yizhixing. That's what we have been using for uh, Doug's course. We need to make sure those translations are aligned and delivered to the student consistently. Also, we have developed a caption style guide for the translation vendors to follow to make sure we have a standard for our transcriptions. So before the course go live, we also do another step called quality insurance. When we QA the course, we're not only check the Chinese, but also checking the English part and make sure those two languages are aligned to each other. The reason why we're providing the English transcripts, it's because some students are somewhat fluent in English in China and providing that original content in English also create a global aspect of the course. I just want to add one thing here and then I want to come back to what Kathy just said. It's really important what she's talking about because all of academia is like this, but in the business school world and in leadership world, there's lots of weird buzzwords. And so there's this term that I use in my courses and a lot of leadership faculty do called the strategic alignment framework. And what it means is you have strategy and the organization must be aligned in a structure. And so to use the Chinese, it's a it's something that's really critical. But if we didn't have Kathy and we translated that wrong, the students would just be like, I, I don't understand what you're saying, right? And so her job is incredibly important and the execution of it is amazing. Now, I want to say one thing about this team. I mean, the team is incredible and they've really taken this course to a much higher level than I've ever experienced. And just to give you one example of what Kathy's talking about, so you might hear her talking a lot about translation right? And is this the right word? And is this the right? And they are constantly coming back to the faculty and saying, are we doing this right? And what does this mean? And so, it's really a high touch, deep dive. But there's another example that's sort of a cultural awareness example. And so, I have a section in my class on networks. Networks are a really important part of the organizational infrastructure. And I used the example that was made famous by Malcolm Gladwell, who wasn't the historian who wrote about this, but Malcolm Gladwell wrote about why Paul Revere was the famous one. And it's all a story about networks, right? We don't talk about Sam Prescott. And so it's a network story. It's a good story. And when you teach that, students love it. And these guys came back to me and like, Doug, people in China do not know who Paul Revere is. I was so pleased and thankful, but I was like, I should have seen that. I should have seen that. Then we're like revamping it and we're using different Chinese examples. What they're doing is not just about language and translation. It's really about cultural translation. And is this right for a Chinese audience, right? Am I telling that story right? Right, right. Thank you, Doc, for bringing that up. That was a perfect example. Because of the history part in U.S., it's famous, but not a lot of Chinese students would understand the reason why you're using that example. 
So we suggested to use Chinese influential people over there, so they can make connections to help students really understand what we're trying to deliver. Certainly, something that we take for granted、yeah. uh, this kind of cultural shared knowledge that might not be. Culturally shared among all cultures. Yeah, and then how do you build off of something people don't understand? <laughs> right, right, right. So as we work across global enterprises in our global world in a global knowledge economy, it's very critical to be able to interpret what meaning and sense making might mean to other viewers of that same content, how they might interact and interpret that material. So Kathy's role is very critical and very influential for us as a team in partnering. With our faculty across ASU, and in particular our Thunderbird faculty, Doug Guthrie, in this course episode, to talk about contextualizing that experience for students. So when we go through storytelling,、uh, when we're trying to share these experiences and tell these stories to students, that it's something that will resonate with them on a cultural level. That we're not adding a barrier that they might not understand that specific story. They'll share a story within the episode. Regarding one example that they noticed as they were partnering on the course development together. Yeah, it's great. I love that he and she working together can create this contextually inclusive experience. And exactly, that's what this is about: increasing inclusion and access to education on a global scale, and removing those barriers to attaining education. In this case, it might be language. So cool! You guys are doing great work. Thank you. So to continue this conversation about the contextual aspect and a global audience, specifically China, case studies are a huge part of this course, and that's how students are really learning from things that have happened in the real world. These leadership practices, you know, the personal development. What is the thought process on deciding these specific case studies? Having taught this multiple times, have you thought about changing any case studies or realizing that certain case studies aren't as relevant to the audience? In this context, it's a great question, and it's a nice lead-on from what we were just talking about about Kathy's work in this area. Yes, it is true that we need as many China-relevant case studies as possible, and so we really have thought a lot about this. And the course is much different than I normally teach it to an American audience. The one caveat there is that Chinese students, business students, in my experience, they do want to know about really successful organizations. And so, the one case study that feels very American, but I can talk about it as being a very Chinese experience, is the case of Apple. So, I'm fortunate that I've had this unique experience of working for five years in Apple. For China, training Chinese students about what innovation means to Apple. Everybody knows who Steve Jobs is, but they want to know, like, how did he get fired in 1985, and then how did he come back, and who's Tim Cook? And that case is the one that feels the most American in the dynamic. There's one other that's sort of very American case, the Linda Rabbit case. But the reason I've left that case in. So much is because I can use my own experience and talk about the China experience and what it's like to be a foreign multinational operating in China and what it's like to have Chinese suppliers as the partners. Specifically, that Apple story because I've read that case study and I've kind of pondered it as an American looking in on this situation and what it might look like from a Chinese perspective. Just to summarize for our audience, it's not just that the Apple CEO got fired, but it's. The type of environment that Apple has of like allowing people to kind of chase their passions and to kind of you know have that I can't remember the maybe Doug you can tell me about accountability without control nice right good yes so how does that play out in a context where maybe that's not their work experience or what what is the feedback you get from students about 
that sounds great. That's Apple. They're this huge company. They're this American company. How do I take that into my life? How do I take that into my organization? Well, there's an interesting dance in leadership courses, especially those where we're trying to not do the CEO style leadership, but do what I call everyday leadership. So sometimes people read about Steve Jobs and they're like, I'm not Steve Jobs, but that's why we have the Donna Dubinsky case because Donna Dubinsky and Steve Jobs got into a fight, but she was leading from within to actually change something that happened within Apple. And it's also a story about bad leadership. Like we always think that the great, wealthy, innovative people of the world are great leaders, but Steve Jobs was not a great leader in the 1980s and he was fired by the board. He eventually came back and sort of saved Apple, but it's a good story for people to understand, yeah, you're not Steve Jobs, but all leaders make mistakes. And what we want to do is help give you the skills, the vision, alignment, motivation, introspection of how to be a good leader, no matter what position you're in. And so that's why the Donna Dominsky case is, is really good for that. The one other thing to answer your question is that here again, I'm very interested in people taking the skills and saying, oh, this isn't just Tim Cook. Doug's teaching us vision, alignment, motivation, introspection, and I have to take that to my little team. Maybe you're a manager of three people. You still have to do the same things that I would coach a big time leader to do. And this is where I think the course gets really interesting and exciting because we have a lot of people that are mid-level managers and below. And so we push them very hard to say, yes, this is a case about Apple and Tim Cook and Steve Jobs, but I want you to think about what the skill of vision alignment, motivation, and introspection means for you in your team. And we get them talking in office hours or on the discussion board. It kind of blows up. Like it's really exciting because they are getting, oh, this is about me. This is really about me. It's been a really fun part of the course to do that. The one other thing is that it also brings in this other piece that I want to talk to you about, about getting the students talking about politics and contextual issues. Business relationships in China under Xi Jinping is a huge thing. And so that's part of our goal too. Well, we want to get to that and that is incredibly important. But Kathy, to provide clarity to our audience, this idea of the VAMI framework is the central component of this course. And it's a tool even I will use in my own life. And I think students will have that same application ability to that. Right. So, Doug, would you like to talk about the VAMI framework? Well, by the way, VAMI spelled V-A-M-I, If in case you've never heard of this framework before. VAMI was referenced. What does VAMI stand for? V-A-M-I. VAMI stands for Professor Guthrie's framework. Uh, this is a lens. The VAMI refers to vision, alignment, motivation, introspection. So the critical piece to understand uh, in terms of a broad overview that the professor will dive into further is that this is a lens through which we can view organizational culture, our role within that system in the organization, and that ties into his approach to everyday leadership. And his approach to teaching because he's so introspective. I mean, well, we're going to hear it. Let's just continue on and listen to the conversation. Just to be clear, I didn't make this up. Like I learned this at Harvard Business School. There are lots of business school professors who use it. The way I've sort of made it my own is if you're teaching a everyday leadership. So if you're teaching a mid-level manager at a place like Apple or Tesla or any big place, and they'll say, I'm just an operations manager of the supply chain. Vision is not my thing. That's Elon Musk's thing, right? And my answer is always, look, you're right. Elon Musk and the leadership team are setting the vision for what this company is in society. But companies are not comprised of the senior leadership. Companies are comprised of you. And so you have to understand this vision. You have to push yourself to not just think, I'm just an ops manager. I'm just going to focus on my functional area of expertise. No, no. I remember some of these conversations I would have at Apple and we'd start talking about Xi Jinping and governance affairs. 
and some of these younger people would be like, uh, Professor Guthrie, government affairs office is down the hall. This is not our business. And I would say, actually, it is your business because you are the one who's managing Foxconn. And so you need to know what the mayor of Zhengzhou is thinking. And you need to come back and tell Rory Sexton, who is the VP for ops, people need to know. And so like, it is your job, actually. So the vision piece is there and you can see students sort of sitting up bigger and like, okay, this is important that I need to do this, right? Right, because I think students never had that opportunity before they're taking the course to see that big picture of what the vision are. That's important to show them that piece of me free more. Yeah, thank you. And should I go through the yeah. other yeah, components? Sure. Yeah, okay. go ahead. So alignment is really important, but again, a lot of more junior people will say, well, alignment, you know, that sounds like strategy, organizational structure and design. My answer here again is actually probably the most important part of alignment is organizational culture. And you guys are responsible for building and maintaining the organizational culture by having the right culture with your teams. And again, you can see people sitting up and being like, okay, okay. So what I think about Apple's organizational culture matters? And my answer is absolutely. So exact, just you were going through what some of the cases are. I think the third day is like values-based leadership. My personal view is Apple likes to present itself as a values-based leadership company, but people would ask me what it was like to work for Apple. And I would say, you don't get to be the richest, most profitable company in the world by being nice. Shareholder value is probably what matters most. And so that's a good conversation because it's just this mismatch of the culture right? And so like really getting into a kind of a clear understanding of how you as a mid-level manager are responsible for helping to build that culture. And then you go sort of smaller and smaller. You have the vision of the company and society, you have the alignment of the company and how you build teams. And then you have person-to-person interaction. How do you motivate people? How do you get them wanting to work for you and not just wanting to be promoted and leave your team? They might want to forego the promotion that's on their horizon because they love your team. They love you. And so motivation I think is really important. And then the final part, which is the individual level, which is the I, is introspection. I just think it's so important that people are introspective. And if I could tell one more personal story, I'm sorry, I'm talking too long. I was a very young dean and I used to teach leadership and, you know, think big things about doing big things with this organization, but I wasn't very introspective. I remember giving one of these fiery speeches and this woman who was one of the chairs of my department came to me and she said, Doug, can I talk to you? I said, sure. And she said, you're amazing when you give those fiery speeches. It's great. But you know, what we hear is that you don't like us very much because you think we don't work hard enough and you think we need to go out and hire new people. And I was like, no, Jen, no, that's not what I mean. And she's like, I know, I know, Doug, and I know you you teach leadership, but you got some work to do. And it was amazing because I was just like, okay, okay. And now the interesting end to that story is I got fired from that job because I wasn't introspective enough to actually be a good leader. And so I always tell that story to my students. <laughs> yeah, that's incredibly important though, that last piece of there, because the first V-A-M Right. Those are things that we all hear about in the news and in the blog posts and in the leadership things, but it's that I that really makes it come together. Hearing about your background and the context of this course and the main takeaways and the value for students is incredibly important, but thinking about how your students have changed you is something that all teachers have to think about, all professors, all instructors should think about, is how your students have helped you grow. So could you tell us what have you learned from your students? Sure. You know, one of the things that happened to me after I got fired from being a dean was ironically, I became a much better leadership teacher because I realized I had blown it. 
and I wasn't introspective enough. And so I want to tell students stories and I want to be vulnerable so that they understand. And sometimes students will come up to me and say like, why did you tell us that? Leaders don't normally talk about their failures. I had an amazing situation recently where I was teaching our regional business management Asia. So I was teaching about China, but this was in Phoenix. And I started out the class being vulnerable, Doug, and telling stories about my life and being fired and what I learned and how I learned to be more vulnerable and introspective and allows me to connect with people better. And this guy came up to me after class. He was a big, burly guy. And he was staring at me. And I was not sure what was going to happen here. And he was like, can I tell you something? And I said, sure. He said, can I give you a hug? <laughs> I said, okay, um, yes, but you have to tell me what this is about. And he's like, I've never had a teacher who was so vulnerable. And I just want to thank you. And so I tell that more as a story of what I've learned from my own life, but also what I've learned from students like that. When you're vulnerable with students, they respond to you. It makes you a better teacher, but it makes you a better listener. And then the students like really take command of the classroom. It's a fun experience. Right there. That's what it is. That's what it's all about. Connecting with your students, creating a space where they feel like they can connect with you. I mean, I cannot even imagine what he was thinking when this guy's waiting for him after class and he's this big dude like, what is going to happen? Right. (laughs) But that he just wanted a hug because he felt so connected to his story and that he was so vulnerable and sharing that he failed, but that he learned and that through that learning, he was willing to tell that story to his students and show that he's not perfect and that this whole world, this whole experience is introspection and learning and becoming better. I love Mm -hmm. it. Mm -hmm. That was a phenomenal story that he shared about who you are as a leader and showing up every day and that power of being self-reflective. Absolutely. So good. His students are very lucky. It's hard to do that in this environment. The way we structure these courses, they can be 100% asynchronous for the students if they want. We do have optional office hours, but we can't mandate that they come. But we want them to either be involved in the office hours or on the discussion boards. It's a harder task because you're just not standing in front of students. But one of the things that we do try to do is we encourage students to come to the office hours and be with the professor once a week. I can speak to them a lot in Chinese so they feel connected that way. But even though we're online, I still try to tell real stories and to tell stories about myself that are an example of when I was a young leader and then ask them for their stories. And when we've mixed asking them, like translating the Donna Dabinsky case into like your organization, I want you to think about something that you experienced that was like this and tell us about it, then students will do it. We're really trying to bring that high touch face-to-face and vulnerable approach to this course. And I just think this team, the Ed Plus team has done it magically. Zach, you and Kathy have been working so closely with me, but you've really revamped the course to make it better. Can you talk about that? Thanks, Doug. I appreciate that. And I'm sure, you know, Kathy can speak to that as well. But part of it is, and it's just in complete honesty, is that it's a good course and it's good content. If I had my wish in the world, then everybody would have access to this course because it doesn't matter, as you said about everyday leadership, it doesn't matter if you're at the top of the organization. This is something that everybody in society can benefit from. Everybody can have that power to contribute to help other people. So the message of this course is what connected me to it and made me think I need to make this the best course possible for anybody on this planet to have access to. Accessibility first. Kathy, do you want to add anything about that? Yeah, sure. So it's been a great privilege to work with Doug and Zach. I feel like I'm so 
grateful because I can read both languages and learning this content twice, not just in English, but also in learning in Mandarin. And I sometimes feel like myself, it's a student as well, because I have never taken leadership class before and the VAMI framework that you have mentioned that brought me a different perspective. And then I actually can see the different views that I've never seen before as a student. So it's a great experience for me. So if we could make this course accessible for all the students from anywhere from the world, that would be, that would be great. That's our next project, right? Right. And just to add off on that, I'd say that it's a challenge and that those make the best courses, I think, because you're trying to push the envelope. You're trying to go further than what has been done. And that's what really motivates you going back to the VAMI framework about motivation. So my motivation and maybe Kathy's is this can be even better. And once it gets that better, then it can be even better. And then what happens when this spreads to all courses? And then it becomes unstoppable. Thunderbird becomes the top business school. Let me add one final piece to this. You know, in the past, I've been involved with online education before, as we've discussed. And there's the Coursera model where you just film and send it out to 100,000 people. But even so, even if we want something higher touch, a lot of faculty, myself included, sort of think like, well, I did my recordings. I got all the stuff over to the producers. Just put it on Canvas and we're, we'll be fine. And when this team took over, they weren't satisfied. Like they became students of the course themselves. And like sometimes the detail that they'd come to me with, like it was clear, like, I think you know that video and module better than I do, Zach. <laughs> you know? And so I think it's just like there is an iterative process of continuing to push forward to make online learning better. And I think this team is doing it. Well, we appreciate all the effort you've put into this too, because it's a partnership. And so it's not just our side, but it's the other side coming together and you know agreeing to make this the best it could be. But I would like to add, just as we're winding down here, I have to ask, is there any question that you wish we would have asked you? I don't really think so, Zach. I'm very, very excited and happy with the partnership and just you know the iterative process of continually pushing to get better. And so I'm, I'm, I'm satisfied. I'm excited. So where is the end of the core story goes for students? Where are they going to end up with? Yeah, it's a, it's a wonderful question to like bring it back to the, to the students and bring it back to the, the consumers. And of course, you know, many of us teach and do research in a given area because we're passionate about the topic. But you just don't get into this level of high touch education without thinking deeply about like, how are we affecting students' lives? And so it's a wonderful question, Kathy. And, you know, the dream is that these courses and a few others are transformative in their lives. And you guys have been very generous in terms of talking about like what this course in particular does for helping people think. But there are several, many courses. Some of them are more functional. You know, you got to learn finance and you got to learn accounting. You know, my course, we really try to make sure that this is having an impact on somebody's life. Now, one end is that they'll go on and they'll finish their graduate degree and they'll have a higher degree and hopefully it'll help their careers and they'll unfold deeper. But for me, this particular course story, and we've sort of touched on it already, but it's worth saying again, my aspiration is big. I hope this course is transformative of their lives. I hope they think about leadership in a different way. And that helps them no matter whether they immediately get a promotion and are in a different position because of their degree. My hope is that this particular course feels transformative and makes them think of their role in the organization, vision, alignment, motivation, introspection in a deeper way. And it just makes them hopefully better workers for sure, but also hopefully touches their lives a little bit and maybe makes them different kinds of people. And so that's my hope. That's the big dream. 
Doug, this has been a phenomenal conversation and thank you for taking the time out of your day to spend and really share with us and share with the audience all that you put into this course, the background of your life and your experiences, the introspection that you had. So thank you for that. You know, I'm sure many of our listeners are very excited about your work that you've done. Like where can they find out more about you? Is there a website? Is there a book, articles? Well, thank you for that, Zach. So, you know, I've been a China researcher for a long time, and there are several books out there that deal with China's economic reforms and China's role in the global economy. And I'm always happy to give suggestions to people who want to who read them. I also do a lot of writing, and so people can find me on the web, and they can find articles that we've written about things. You know, I've spent my life living in and out of China. And even when I wasn't living in China full time, I would be traveling to China six, seven times a year. I got my family back in August of 2019. And then I was in China throughout the rest of the fall. And then this little thing called the pandemic happened. And suddenly I was terrified because I didn't know when I was going to be able to travel to China again. And so I have a team of collaborators there that my, my brand is very much a boots on the ground brand. Like whenever I talk to students or executives, it's very much like, yeah, and I did this and I talked to these people. And, and so I haven't been able to do that. But luckily, we have a team of collaborators there that have been great. They all live in Shanghai and they're, they're part of the work that we do. And so we just continue to try to push out research and continue to try to educate people. So if our listeners just type in Doug Guthrie on the web, they would be able to find your work, yeah. your articles. Yeah. And finally, remember to go to the Thunderbird website. There's a tremendous amount of just deep research and just knowledgeable faculty there, both about China, but also about the global political economy. And so please remember to go there. And we'll have links on the show notes as well. Well, that was a great conversation and, and it really kind of made me introspective about my own ability to be vulnerable in, in different spaces. That was, Doug is a real great example of someone who is able to do that and, and be successful at it. And he speaks so eloquently about failing, right? Mm -hmm. Like he, it makes it almost feel safe to fail. Right. Like it's not encouraged. You don't want to fail, but right, if you right. do, it's an opportunity at that point mm -hmm. and to learn and to grow. It's a really good first first season episode first episode of the season first episode of the season <laughs> and thank you so much maggie thank you for arranging to have your instructional designers yeah be a part of this conversation and doug and thanks for sharing your experience and if there's anything else you'd like the viewers <laughs> again listeners, listeners to know about please feel free to share absolutely thank you so much for having us we're hopeful that even if you do not work with an international student population located in china that there's elements that everyone can take away uh, from this particular episode of Course Stories. Yeah, and your instructional designers are into iterative design. It's clear that their passion mm -hmm. leads them to want to continue to be introspective themselves and right. think about how they can improve the course. So that actually stands out really well. Mm -hmm. It does. One excellent thing that this particular episode featured was that relationship building dynamic uh, between the faculty and the course development team mm -hmm. and the power of how when you build that relationship and that connection with that faculty of how you're able to iterate and take that to the next level and continuously improve the course and I think this particular episode does a great job of highlighting that journey between our faculty, our Thunderbird faculty, Professor Doug Guthrie in this case and also our course development team at Ed Plus within ASU Online. Yeah, 
Excellent. Thank you so much. All right, Mary, what can the listeners do this season? Like, listen, subscribe, follow us everywhere. Tell your mom, your dad, your sister, your brother, your aunts and your uncles, write them that after holiday thank you letter. And at the end of it, put at course stories and then they'll look it up and have no idea what it is, but they'll be so thankful you did. (laughs) (laughs) Well, yes, listener, do that journey (laughs) and report back to us and tell us how it went. Truly, though, write to us, stories at asu.edu. Course Stories is available wherever you listen to podcasts. You can reach us at stories at asu.edu. Course Stories is produced by the Instructional Design and New Media team at EdPlus at Arizona State University. If you're an instructor at ASU Online, tell us your course story, and we may feature it in a future episode. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.